Welcome. G'day. Again. So good to have you here, Rochelle. This is Rochelle. You might recognise her and her husband Barry came uh, a couple of years ago now uh, and uh, helped teach at a Green Tree and Elijah House events. So Rochelle is the director of Elijah House in USA. And, uh, and so, yeah. But more importantly than that is that she's our friend. And we love you and we're so glad that you've been able to come here and, and, uh, and be with us. It's good. I want to talk to you this morning about, uh, it's on the screen, transformation culture. And, and what it is to, uh, to, I guess, well, why, why would we cultivate a transformation culture? And I'm not going to necessarily nail down into lots of the practicalities of that. But really talk about the maybe some of the reason behind why we do what we do and why we establish why we're intentional about certain things because we might be intentional in this community about things that people aren't used to being intentional about um, but everything that we do i say like mostly everything uh, we are intentional about and so what we build is like it's not accidental it's intentional uh, why i mean you you'd come in and you'd sit well why are we sitting around the room like this, it's intentional um, because of what it represents to people when we gather around God, when we don't gather around people, um, when it, what it looks like to be family, like all of the little things that we do to create, and we're not trying to, it's, it's trying to create authenticity by the environment that we set. Um, but what we do then to establish forums and equip people and train them and encourage them in is is a big part of that is transformation because it's on God's heart and it's what he does you know it's so often um, the gospel that is proclaimed to people so when someone preaches the gospel you know it's like a salvation message you know in other words and the gospel simply means the good news of the kingdom of God but so often the gospel that is proclaimed is primarily focused around personal salvation. So essentially that Jesus has died in your place. He's rose again so that you can have new life. He took the punishment that you and I deserve upon him on the cross. And he has been resurrected into new life so that we too can walk into new life. But the removal of that punishment essentially allows us to one day go to heaven rather than one day go to hell. It's a very familiar, um, it, but it is, it is a modern version of the gospel message. Only a couple of hundred years old that the, that the message of the good news of Jesus has been shared, focusing on those parts, because it is good news and it is part of the gospel message, but it's only part of it. So essentially it's focused around avoiding the punishment from God for sin. So God is angry with you, and if you want to make him happy, pray this prayer, receive salvation, and God goes from being angry God to happy God. Yeah, that's the gospel. Hooray. Avoid getting punished. And because we enter our journey with Jesus, with this as the primary focus, it can therefore end up receiving a majority of our attention. That's the kind of the doorway that we enter in, and that becomes the kind of the, the mode of when we first met Jesus, what was the message that we received? 
is that he's angry with you. He's going to kill you and punish you for all eternity. So do this and you'll get out of that. You'll wonder why people struggle to see God as a good and loving father. It's because the foundation that was laid is that God is dangerous. The invitation of Jesus to follow him is therefore not about intimacy and relationship and transformation and restoration. It's about getting out from underneath God's mighty hammer of anger and wrath. Well, I don't want God to crush me, so I'll, I will, I will pray a prayer. I'll say yes to Jesus and get my, you know, my ticket out of hell, and then, then I'll be good. And then one day, when I die... I'll go to heaven to be with him. So is there a punishment for sin? Yes. Did Jesus die in our place for our sin? Yes. Cool, we got the basics down. Did he rise again so that we can walk in new life? Yes. Cool. Foundation is good, right understanding. But what, what then? Like where do we go from there? So Jesus died on the cross of sin, he rose again so you can have a new life and he's coming back again so now you can go somewhere different on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so you can read and study a book that talks about him. So you can give your money, you can take a portion of your money and give it to this organisation called the church for them to look after Are we just waiting around for him to return or for us to die? Is that kind of what we're doing? We're just kind of sitting around. I don't know, I'm talking to people here that's like, well, we know that. But I'm just saying, like, what's, if this is the, the thrust of what we're sharing with the world, this is the message that we're giving them. It's no wonder that we're not seeing people transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Because they're not presented with transformation either as an expectation or even an opportunity? Have we missed something in our understanding of what Jesus was actually inviting us into when he called us to follow him? And that is what it is. When Jesus says, come follow me, and he said it to his disciples when he was on earth and many other people, he said, just come and follow me, and they followed him. And he says the same thing to us. That's the invitation into salvation. He says, I've taken care of all of those things. I've taken care of your guilt and your sin. I've taken care of the punishment that you deserve. And I've even conquered Satan's sin and death. So guess what? You don't need to worry about all of those things. And now you are free to come and follow me. And yet how often do we stay focused on dealing with sin and am I saved really and is God angry with me still and I've messed up again and we, we, our attention stays focused on all those things and yet Jesus like, I, I, sorry guys, you never did any of those things to start with. <laughs> it was all me. And so what I'm, but what I'm, because I did that, now you don't need to focus on those things and you can focus on following me, being a disciple of Jesus. And so to become a disciple was to enter into the process of becoming like the one you were following. So again, we don't really have discipleship as part of our, the normality of our culture. You know, we would do have things like apprenticeships and a trade sense and that sort of thing where you are investing 
you know, you're not just going and learning knowledge, but you're learning the practical ways of doing something. But even in that, you know, when I was, I was an apprentice electrician, I wasn't trying to emulate the person that I was following. I was trying to learn what are some of the things that I need to know to be an electrician and essentially to not die sometimes. Um, you know, that was what I was learning. So it was information and uh, not so much behavior because everyone could be different in that. Um, but so we don't really have that as a normal concept in our culture. And yet in Jesus' time, it was very, very normal for anyone in first century Judaism to understand what discipleship was. It was common practice in Jewish culture. And I've got uh, just some stuff here from a commentary, but it says, every first century Jew knew that the scriptures had authority over all aspects of life. God may have been a mystery to them, but behavior was not. Furthermore, it was scrupulous behavior. It was not about the condition of your heart that defined a righteous person. It was all to do with behavior, how you looked on the outside. And then so therefore you wonder, you know, when you read the words of Jesus calling, you know, the, the religious leaders, you know, whitewashed tombs and saying, you know, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside's dirty. Essentially, that's what he was provoking and pointing at is that you have all the right behavior and yet your hearts are unclean. So thus many Jews had a desire to honor God by doing all the right things. In the world of Pharisaism, rabbis were the teachers who had been given the authoritative role to interpret God's word for the living of a righteous life, defining what behavior would or would not please God. So again, we can look at the law and all the laws of God, and there were, you know, 400 and something laws. We understand the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you might not know them off by heart, but we think of, oh, the God's law was the Ten Commandments. There was, I think, well, maybe there was 500. There was hundreds and hundreds of these laws that God had established for his people. But a Jewish person looked at those laws, and they didn't look like negatively, oh, what a way. They're like, no, no, that's, that to them was like the bullseye. If I could, you know, tick off and meet every requirement of the law, it was like I'm hitting the bullseye and the target of what it means to honor God with my life. So, I mean, I'm sure people might have seen it as a weighty kind of expectation, but it, it was coming from, no, no, I desire to honor God with my life. So I will do the best that I can to fulfill all of the requirements of the law. Now, Jesus, when he called his disciples, he was calling people that were not um, kind of top of the list of, you know, to be a disciple of someone. So when you were a, a young Jewish boy, you were taught, I think you... You memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. I think it was by the time you were 12, 6, was it? By the time you were 6 years old, you had memorized, if you were a good Jewish boy, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Yeah? Anyone know, memorize like one verse of the Bible? Yeah? Or even one chapter? I know half of Ephesians 3. That's as far as I'm going. But, you know, like that's, that was their life. That was their understanding. And, and as they then grew, they would go through their, their kind of rabbinical school and be trained up. And then a rabbi would choose or they would choose a rabbi to follow. And based upon their performance in their understanding of the law and the Old Testament, all of those sorts of things, the rabbi would agree for them to follow. Okay. Now, when you look at the people that Jesus chose, they'd already gone through that process and realized we are not fit to be disciples of a rabbi. So we will go and work secular jobs. I'll go and be a fisherman or a tax collector or whatever it was. 
So again, when Jesus chooses these people, these are the most unlikely candidates to be a disciple of any rabbi, let alone the, the very Son of God. And that's what he started with. Because he's God and he can transform people. So he knew it really didn't matter who they were because who they were going to become, he knew who they could become under his discipleship. So if a rabbi ultimately agreed to a would-be disciple's request and allowed him to become a disciple, the disciple-to-be agreed to totally submit to the rabbi's authority in all areas of interpreting the scriptures for his life. This was a cultural given for all observant Jewish young men, something each truly wanted to do. As a result, each disciple came to a rabbinic relationship with a desire and a willingness to do just that, to surrender to the authority of God's word as interpreted by his rabbi's view of scripture. And in the dynamics, so there would be, again, a rabbi would have a a community of disciples. It wasn't just one person. It was a community of people. And in the dynamics of this intimate discipling community, all of a disciple's daily life was observable by the rabbi. This is, again, is that thing of not, you know, coming and attend. They didn't come and attend a class. They lived 24 hours a day, seven days a week with this rabbi. A disciple would expect the rabbi's consistent and persistent question, why did you do that? The emphasis was always on behavior formation, not just the imparting of wisdom and related interpretive information. In this interactive manner, the rabbis functioned to clear up gray areas of understanding and different difficult areas of textual interpretation for their disciples. And by always asking questions, so the rabbis were always asking questions of the disciples, so they would do something, and it wasn't the disciple would say, how do I do this? They would do something, the rabbi would say, why did you do that? And they'd have to explain themselves. And by always asking questions, the rabbis were concentrating on developing discernment in the mind of the disciple, not the imparting of how-to formulas, You know, the notions of three principles of prayer or four steps to prosperity would be abhorrent to a first century rabbi. They wouldn't be there to lay it all out. Well, this is how you do it. Come and I'll show you. Do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. They would be watching the disciple. And when the disciple did something, why did you do that? And they would be able to open up. Well, it's because of this reason. There would be correction and an alteration of those things. But they weren't, you know, in our culture, that's what we do. Cool, just give me the tips. And, uh, And then so often we get the tips and we don't follow through with them. But it doesn't develop internal wisdom and surety within us. But I love this reality of and 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 i think it's i mean we we teach and share here but that's what we encourage people is like be in a life hub be in a discipling community because that's where you're going to walk out those things not just where you'll choose to say this is what i want to do and this is how i want to behave but other people will look in and say to you why'd you do that that's what a discipling that's what a transformation culture looks like is you have a, a community of people around you that are constantly asking you why did you do that why are, you, why, are you, why are you speaking that way? Why are you offended at that person? Why are you getting so upset about this situation? But again, they're, they're like heart questions. They're getting below the surface of something. And so then we're not walking through life just trying to figure out every moment of every day, like what would Jesus do here? and What would he do? We're, we are not just in a discipling culture, but also we have the very presence of God in us convicting us 
And so we do something, and the Holy Spirit says, why did you do that? I don't, I don't know. I, I think I wanted just to be seen. Well, let's talk about that. Getting to the motivation of the heart. And that is where, you know, I, I, I get a little bit funny sometimes. You know how people, and they just, um, it's like they, they quote scripture for every answer to everything, but it seems to just kind of come out of here and not out of here. And so, you know, it's almost like, like they're avoiding having to deal with their heart because they've got an answer for every problem, and yet it sounds right because it's scripture. And yet it's not someone going, I'm, I'm wrestling through this issue in my heart because I want him to mature my internal. Not just, know, okay, well, I know the scripture for that, and so I'll do that, and I'll do that, and become kind of this biblical robot in a sense. So I'll go on about this uh, from this writing about rabbis. So while not overtly required, disciples invariably had a deep desire to emulate their rabbi, so in all of their actions and behaviors and words to become like them. This often included imitating how their rabbi ate, how the rabbi observed the Sabbath, what he liked and disliked, as well as his mannerisms, prejudices, and preferences. And so for us, as Jesus' disciples, our whole life is focused around becoming more like him. It's not just learning about him, but saying, well, how would Jesus parent my, my children? How would Jesus have me date my girlfriend? How would Jesus respect my boss? How would Jesus love my wife? How would Jesus care for my finances? And again, we ask that question and it becomes something like, okay, so I can then try and figure out, well, I'll, I'll search the scriptures and I'll, okay, well, he would have done this and then he would have done this and, okay, so now I know and I'll try and do what, what Jesus did. As I've said many times before, though, Jesus never asked, what would Jesus do? He always just did because that's who he was. And in a, in a behavior modification culture, we try to figure out what would he do and then we act in accordance with that. Even sometimes against our own will, we will, will, will strive to do the right thing. But then life becomes quite difficult because it's constantly, there can be this constant working against ourselves to want to do the right thing, and yet part of me doesn't want to do the right thing. Paul talks about this in Romans 7, you know, like I, I desire to do the right thing, and then I, but I do the wrong thing, and, and I don't desire to do the wrong thing, but then like it's, it's, I just can't, I'm, I'm stuck in this place. And he cries out, who can deliver me from this body of death? And what's his answer? Jesus. So who can deliver me from this internal conflict? Well, Jesus can, because Jesus doesn't want to modify your behavior. He wants to transform your heart. He wants to actually change you so that you no longer do those things. It's not even in your mind or in your heart to behave in those old ways because you are no longer that old person. So our desire is to learn his ways, to listen to his instruction, and to emulate him in every way, but not just in our behavior, but literally who we are becomes like him. So unlike a disciple and rabbi relationship in Jesus' time, our rabbi lives inside of us. 
And he doesn't desire external emulation, but rather internal transformation, which inevitably leads to outward emulation. We are not just to act like Jesus or speak like Jesus or think like Jesus. We are to become like Jesus. That's his goal for your life, is that you would become more and more like him. And so often we get caught up wrestling with the basics, like, you know, as I said before, it's like, oh, does, does God love me? Or, you know, whether does God accept me? Or, you know, has the sin that I just committed cut me off from relationship with him? Or is he really good? And can I really trust him? And, and these are all of those basic elements, but we get so caught up, you know, questioning those sorts of things. So it's important that we understand that there is a finished work of Jesus. Paul talks about in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, where he says, um, I desire to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. And we didn't come with lofty wisdom, but with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can take that and go, well, that's the message of the gospel. That's what we need to preach to people. It's just Christ and him crucified. But that's good news to get you in. But it's not, it doesn't work to keep you going. Because Paul goes on, when you read further on in that um, section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, it talks about how, no, but we do impart wisdom to those who are spiritually mature. And this is where he talks about, you know, the, the very thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. In the same way that your spirit knows your true thoughts, your deep internal desires, the things that are maybe hidden from your cognitive mind. And then he says, and you have the mind of Christ, which means you have the Holy Spirit. You have all of the thoughts of God dwelling in you. So you have access to what God thinks, not, not even just in the scriptures, but literally dwelling inside of you. Every thought of God lives in you. How amazing is that? But we can get caught up in all of these... You know, uh, these, the, essentially the basics of that, and we don't move on into spiritual wisdom. Now, again, I'm not talking about this, this what they call Gnosticism, where you get these like high and lofty, mysterious things, and I had, you know, went to a trance, and God told me all these things, and all this sort of stuff. Now, God, you can go into trances. The Apostle Paul did. You can receive crazy revelations about God, okay? And that's okay. But again, that's not what Paul's talking about, spiritual wisdom, Okay, it's wisdom, it, you'll find it in the scriptures, but it's when the Holy Spirit starts teaching you, now this is what it looks like to live and to become like Jesus. So obviously it's important to confess and repent of our sin. That is part of being a disciple. But if we spend all of our time focused on somehow achieving things that we never earned in the first place, then we end up completely distracted from the entire point of salvation, which is our transformation to be like him. We're stuck trying to focus and figure out whether or not what Jesus accomplished was enough for us. Well, is it Jesus plus my good works? Was it Jesus plus my, you know, my good behavior? Was it Jesus plus my, my pure thinking? Was it Jesus plus my, all my pure heart? You know, there's, there's no Jesus plus... I've heard it said, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. There is no addition to his finished work. But there is an outworking of his finished work. 
And that's, that's the journey that we walk. That's the outworking of salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. We talked about this on Friday. It's God's desire and his pleasure to transform you. He's not thinking, oh, you are, I, I, I can't even look at you. You are so gross. I just saw what you did. Okay, I, we, need to, we need to get you cleaned up so you can come, you know, you can come and be around me. You know, because I'm pure and holy. I'm, all, you know, I'm in white robes, for crying out loud. And you're icky and disgusting. I don't know what you've been eating. What is in your hair, you know? It's my children sometimes. You know, it's like, what, you know? Yes, come and roll on my fresh, clean bed sheets, you know? But he's not looking to try and clean you up so he could be with you. He's like, no, no, I've, I've done all of that stuff. I've, I've paid the price for your sin, remember? I did that bit so you can come before me, not just, you know, withering maybe, but boldly before the throne of God. In Hebrews, come boldly before the throne of God to receive the grace and mercy that you need to walk out what he has for you. So he's done all the cleaning up so you can come in. And now he's like, I love transforming you. I love convicting you of those areas of sin because it's not who you are anymore. And I know that you're living in a lie. I don't want you to live in a lie anymore. He delights in it. He's not angry with you. It's a big fancy word, theological word called propitiation. And in the Bible, it says that Jesus became, he was the propitiation for our sins, which means that all of the wrath of God that we deserve was poured out upon him. So if he, this, this, this is, I, know, I think Danny Silk's written a book, Unpunishable, and I should have gone in before him, but I feel like I've been saying this for years. It was like he can't, if he punished Jesus, he can't punish you for what Jesus was already punished for. That would be unrighteous of him, for someone to pay for something twice. When you pay off a loan, the bank doesn't come back and say, cool, we're going to start again, you're going to pay it off a second time. You'd be like, uh, hell no. <laughs> yeah. It's hard enough the first time, you know. So we're, we're not living in that place. We're not living in the before salvation reality. And we need to step into this knowing and say, you have done it. Thank you, Jesus, that you did all the things that I couldn't do. But now what I'm going to do is I'm going to steward what you purchased for me. And that is to, I'm going to yield to the process of becoming like you. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, he can look and be filled with joy at our transformation. And we can look and go, this is so painful, Lord. It's so hard to let go of the things that I once loved in order to receive things that I love more. Second Corinthians 3.18. And it says, and we all, say we all, we all, who with unbowed faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Point to me because he's in me. <laughs> we are being transformed. That word transfigured, the same thing that happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was literally changed into that glorious state, that we are being changed into the glorious state of his image. We are being transfigured, transformed into his image. It's happening, people. Get used to it. 
2 Corinthians 5, um, verse 16, it says, from, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, that we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Hallelujah. Leave it there. Praise the Lord. Go about my day. Oh, wait, there's more. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that one verse, where are we? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. That declares your history and your destiny. Jesus became sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. So I know my history and it is my history because that old has gone and the new has come and now my life is to become the very righteousness of God. To manifest that in my life. And this is what I love about transformation, not just changing my behavior and trying to be a better person and, and striving and exerting my will to do better things. But when I become transformed, I can never revert back to my old ways. Do you ever get scared sometimes? Like, what if I hit a hard point and then I'm going to go back to that thing? Well, if you've been transformed, that thing doesn't exist anymore. Well, the old unrenewed part of my heart would have done those things but the renewed part is like it's it's not in there if i went looking for it i wouldn't be able to find it anymore praise the lord now again you might be going really well and you hit a hard time and it's a it's a level of trauma or it reveals something about you that hasn't been transformed and and, and you can you know fall and struggle and all of those sorts of things but i'm saying when your heart is being transformed that old way doesn't exist there is no reversion there is no going back. It's good news, hey? The world is looking for transformation. They don't have an issue with their behavior. They might be suffering the impact of their behavior or other people's behavior and trying with all of their might to find an answer for the pain and the trauma and the suffering that they're living in. But no drug will numb it. No relationship will heal it. There is nothing in this world that can restore the broken parts of humanity. We can cover over things. We can put a fresh coat of paint on it. And yet everything underneath is just going to crumble and fall. And eventually come back through again. It's like when you got, if you've got a rusty piece of metal, you can give it a quick coat of paint and maybe a month, six months, a year, that rust is going to eat its way back through and be revealed again. So the world is hungry for transformation because that is authenticity. When somebody does, when their heart is transformed, then they are authentically that new person anymore. 
They're not just behaving like a different person. Well, I once used to behave like this, but now I behave like this. But if you upset me, I might go back and behave a bit more like that again. So, no, no, I used to be that person, and now I'm actually no longer that person, because that person died with Jesus, and he resurrected a new person. And that new person can't behave like that old person, doesn't even think about it, doesn't cross their mind. I love that, you know. We all struggle with errors of sin, but what I love and I look forward to more is the awareness to go, wow, in that situation, I would have behaved like this, and yet I'm behaving like this. There's, there's someone in this room, I had a conversation with them on Friday. I'm not going to reveal who it was, but in that conversation, and they said to me, you know, I, I just went through this hard time, and I know where I would have been six months ago if I'd hit that same situation. I know what I would have chosen to do, and yet I chose something different. I chose life. I chose freedom. I chose the more of God. That's transformation. That's what it looks like. You know, it's like, well, I, I used to, when I hit a hard time, I used to drink copious amounts of alcohol. Now when I hit a hard time, I run to Jesus or I share with a friend. Or I, I just don't, I don't run to those things anymore because that's not in me anymore. I'm a new person. You know, the gospel that Jesus preached was restoration, not just salvation. I preached a few weeks ago that the plan from, the, from creation, then fall, then redemption in Christ and now restoration. That's the season. We're in the restoration season. He is restoring all things. But that's what Jesus shared about. The coming of the kingdom wasn't so that you could one day go to heaven. The coming of the kingdom is that so that today you can bring heaven to earth. That's why he came. And often the gospel that we preach offers people deliverance from the guilt of sin, but not freedom from the daily consequences of sin. If the only antidote to sin is simply to try harder or even to believe greater, then people are left without transformative answers. This is my issue when people in the church deny and or avoid dealing with hard issues. They say, no, you just need more faith. No, you just need to believe more. You just need to try harder. Do I? Or do I just need to let Jesus transform the very areas of my heart that are fighting against what he wants for me? That's what I want. I don't want to try harder. I'm sick of trying harder. I'm tired from trying harder. I want to be different. I just want to be like you, Jesus. And there's no striving when I'm like him. Because I'm just naturally going to do what he wants me to do. Now, again, we need to know our identity in Christ and those sorts of things. But if I can behave in a way, because in my heart says, I want that more than I want him. Or maybe part of my heart says, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of letting go and giving my all to Jesus. And yet in my mind, I'm like, I want to give my all to Jesus. That's called a double bind. That's where because of trauma or wounding or judgments or inner vows, you are trapped into a way of thinking and believing and behaving. That you can't just think your way out of it. You can't think your way out of a judgment. You can't believe your way out of a judgment. You can't confess your way out of a judgment. You can repent your way out of a judgment because that's how the laws of God work. Right believing is very important, but it doesn't overcome wrong believing in the areas of our heart that are bound by the laws of the kingdom. I read this. We can be bound 
under the laws of the very kingdom that we are preaching to others with the offer of freedom. When you don't understand that God, God has laws, I'm not talking about the Old Testament law, but he has laws. He has ways that the kingdom of God works. And yet we can be stuck and bound under the very laws of his kingdom that we are trying to give to other people. Now again, it's not that it's like, oh, well, I'll get perfect, then I'll do that. But if I don't understand that, no, there's ways in God's kingdom that he operates. Unforgiveness versus forgiveness. You know, wrong judgments. All of these sorts of things. And this is what we learn in, in prayer ministry and the training of that. There's, there's things in my heart that can keep me bound. But I don't want to be bound by the kingdom. Not the kingdom of darkness. It's not even Satan sometimes keeping us bound. I mean, the demonic can keep us bound and we, we go after demons and we kick them out and we do all that sort of stuff. But oftentimes demons are there because I've made a choice to be bound. So I need to go through the process of repentance so that I can be free. And then when I'm free, I can tell that demon to go because I have the freedom to command him to get out of my house. The gospel that has been preached for the last few generations has been primarily around getting the earth to heaven when Jesus' prayer and desire is to get heaven to earth. And again, his transformation doesn't stop with you. He's like, no, I'm restoring all things. And creation is crying out for the sons of God to be released. Those who are genuinely transformed, who have come into sonship, and that creation is like, you've arrived. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I hope that creation sees this church and rejoices. That like the, I know this, I don't want to get all weird and like animistic about things. I'm not talking about like the trees have thoughts. And, but you know, like it's, there's something in it. But like the trees on this property and the soil would just be like, praise God that you are here. Because life is going to come. Because it's going to naturally leak out, you, out of you because you are bringers of the kingdom of God. If our, if our primary focus is getting people to heaven... And yet he is praying, get heaven to earth. I don't think there is anything more disobedient than doing the exact opposite of what Jesus wanted. It's confronting that the very hope that we're offering the world is the exact opposite hope that Jesus offered the world. So it's why I get a little bit passionate when it comes to the gospel message that we preach. That's the primary thrust of evangelical evangelism in the nations. I'm like, you're missing something here. It's not what he wants. He doesn't want extraction. He wants incarnation. That's why he came. He literally demonstrated it. It's like, just so you guys don't miss it, I, God, am going to come from heaven to earth. And I'm going to show you what it looks like to live with all of heaven inside of you on the earth. But I'm going to go. Oh, okay, well, so then we're going to go. No, no, no. I'm going to go so that I can release my spirit from heaven to earth to live inside of you. Okay, cool. So we can get everyone to heaven. No. Because <laughs> heaven is here. It lives in you, so just go about releasing that and bringing more of heaven into every realm of society that we have authority over. If we're not walking in freedom now in the kingdom of God, then what are we actually offering to the world? 
I may be an impatient person, but I don't want to wait for death before I taste the life that Jesus died to give me. I'm going to say that again. I don't want to wait for death before I taste the life that Jesus died to give me. He died so that I can taste life now. Not so that one day, okay, then when I die, oh, cool, then I'll enjoy all of the fruits of heaven and relationship with Jesus. And if all we are offered is behavior modification, we don't experience the true life of the kingdom. Eternal life is now life. And I've said this lots of times, but when God offers you eternal life, he's saying, my life, which is eternal life, heavenly life, kingdom life, I'm going to take my life and invite you into the experience of what life is like for me. So we think eternity all, you know, in terms of time. And yet in heaven, there is no time. So God's not thinking about a period of time, a length of time, an unending length of time, which again, which we interpret because our gospel that we hear is one day I will enter into eternal life. No, no, you enter into eternal life today. As soon as you receive the spirit of God, you you enter into God's kind of life. Does that make sense? Good, you can explain it to me later. And the problem with behavior modification is that it doesn't actually deal with the root of the sin because sin is a heart issue, not a behavior issue. If you're sinning in your behavior, it's because you're sinning first in your heart. That's why Jesus talks about it. Sermon on the Mount. Well, if you, if you, um, you, know, you, you murder someone, well, that's, you think, well, that's pretty bad. Jesus goes, but if you have hatred in your heart, it's just as bad because that's where it begins. Murder begins in the heart. Behavior is always the fruit of sin in our hearts. And by sin, I mean unbelief, lack of understanding, bondage, all of that sort of stuff. So we can behave rightly to the best of our ability, but unless our hearts are dealt with and brought into the freedom that Jesus has for us, that eventually we will revert back to the old ways of our hearts. You get tired. You ever found that? Like, man, I'm doing so well. And then I just get tired. And then I find myself back in that same place that I was in before. I used to find that as, you know, as a young Christian, you, you know, you'd go to a conference and it'd be so powerful and amazing. And you'd be like, man, I am never going to sin again. I'm free for a week. I'm back. And I, and I do think I tie that into grace and humility that we come and oftentimes we are, we are presented with an opportunity to come before him in humility and what do you receive when you step into humility? Grace, the power of God because God opposed the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Okay, so grace is merited favor by the way. I'm not going to preach on grace and how people have screwed up the grace message. If grace comes from humility, that means I act and he pours out. Just saying. It's like, oh, grace is not a covering for your sin. Grace is never inactive. Even sometimes you say, oh, I'm, just, I'm just giving them grace. Which really means I'm just, they're just really annoying me, so I'm just going to stay away from them for the time being. <clears throat> and let them go. It's not grace. It's avoidance, passivity. It's a whole lot of, bunch of things. It, but it sounds like really like, oh, I'm so... I'm so lovely and loving. I'm just giving them grace. If you were to give them grace, 
You'd be sitting down face to face and say, hey, I see you. I see where you're stuck. And I know Jesus has answers. What can I do to help you to walk out of this place that you're in? That's what grace looks like. Because that's what Jesus does. It's his empowering presence. So you want to give people grace, you better get in their face. Boom. If this mic wasn't expensive, I would drop it right now. Transformation changes our heart, which produces the natural fruit of righteousness in our behavior. It's the natural outcome of a transformed heart, is transformed behavior. And this is why we focus on the transformation of people's hearts. And we can use language, oh, it's the heart journey, and it's all of these things. It's simply sanctification. So justification is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The word I used to be told when I was younger was justified is just as if I'd never sinned. So I have been justified. I have received the righteousness of God in Christ and he has put it in me. So I have right standing with God. And out of that place of right standing, I get to walk out that transformation, that salvation, that healing, that fullness of life. But it's called sanctification. And I've got a, from the, uh, the meaning of sanctification, the generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. So when Jesus sanctifies you in the process and that is the rest of your life that's the heart journey that's the transformation journey is Jesus restoring your proper state of functioning he's bringing you back to the right created order of what he had for you in the beginning so to sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer a pen is sanctified when it is used to write. Uh, you know, glasses are sanctified when they're used to improve sight. In the theological sense, things that are sanctified when they are used, uh, when they are used for the purpose God intends. A human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. The Greek word translated sanctification means holiness. To sanctify, therefore, means to make holy. To be on the process of being sanctified by God is to be made holy, to be made like him. And God is not sanctifying you because you're all dirty and broken and he can't stand being around you. That's justification. He is sanctifying you so that you can live out your intended and created purpose. You know, we wrestle often with this, you know, with kind of religiosity or what they call legalism. Or sometimes then people go to the other end of the extreme and it becomes lawlessness. And this is, again, what people call hyper-grace, which is not any grace. It's like, it's anti-grace. To live in either end of the spectrum is anti-grace, okay? Because if, if you had grace, you wouldn't be living in lawlessness. You'd be living in the perfect plan of God. And if you had grace, you wouldn't be in legalism trying to do it all in your own works. You'd be living empowered by the very presence of God. It's a whole other sermon. <sighs> Bring it back. So legalism or religion is bad because it doesn't engage the heart. This was the issue with the religious leaders of Jesus' time. This is what he would provoke them about. I, on the outside, you guys are awesome. But on the inside, a little bit scary, a little bit messy. Because you've avoided all of that. And you've thought, God is pleased because we're doing all of the things that he told us to do in our behavior. And yet, 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The religious leaders of Jesus' day knew all the rules, but they missed the heart of the matter, which is always the matter of the heart. Legalism is behavior that's bound by rules and regulations. So we think, God is pleased with me because I'm doing the right thing. That's what you get. And, then, then, and I am displeased when I look at other people and see them doing the wrong thing according to my rules and my standards. So it, is, it binds self and then it binds other people. Lawlessness, on the other end of the spectrum, is that removal of all laws and expectations, but it's also not done from a free and pure heart. So lawlessness becomes a reaction to legalism. It says, well, I, I don't want to follow all the rules, or I've tried and I can't follow all the rules. And if following the rules makes me accepted, I keep falling below the line time and time again, and I can't live with the guilt and the shame and the expectations of legalism. So, but if that's the only option, I'm just going to go to the other end of the spectrum. It's why people leave the church sometimes. You know, young people, they're, they're okay following the rules. You, you generally you know, can be more compliant when you're in your teens. Yeah, because you live as well under a shame culture in some way. You step outside the line, you get ridiculed and mocked. I stay inside the line, I do what everyone's doing, I say what everyone's saying, I'm okay. All of a sudden, then I come into adulthood and there's this freedom and choice and I can do whatever I want. And it's like, well, why would I live bound by those stupid rules when I can just do whatever I want? But neither of those are right. And as much as people are bound in legalism, you're equally bound in lawlessness. Yes, rebellion. But now I have to rebel because I'm stuck in that place. I can't, I can't agree. I can't come into alignment with those things. So it's just bondage on either side. But what Jesus offers is the middle road of transformation and freedom. So he doesn't say, we're just getting rid of all the laws. No, there's still expectation. There's commands from Jesus for you to follow. But you're going to do it from a place of true freedom, not lawlessness and just, oh, I don't need to worry about it. I'll just do whatever I want and I'll live under grace, which is no grace at all. But I'll come in and I'll go, I am free because the commands that Jesus has for me have become, I love those commands. I never used to, but I've fallen in love with Jesus and I've fallen in love with his commands because those who love me will obey my commands. My heart has been changed. What I used to hate, I now love. Not like I'll grip my teeth and burn, I'll push through. But it's like, no, I, I, love, I love to do this. I love to love people. I love to repent of my sin. I'd love to go and get prayer ministry. You know, that's the thing we talk about sometimes. And, and that's why we say from a leadership level, it's like, I get promised, I've, got, I've got a prayer ministry session this Thursday. And I don't feel like it's something drastically wrong. There's all these problems in my life. It's like, no, no, I don't want to live. I don't, it's not just that I don't want to live in brokenness and pain, all that sort of stuff. And then, cool, I've come to some neutral ground. I want to live in fullness. It's because that's what Jesus has for me. I'm not just trying to avoid the bad. I'm going to run into all the good. So a transformed heart fulfills the obligations of God's commands upon us from a place of complete freedom. So this pursuit of righteousness is not about appeasing God. It's about pleasing God. 
There is nothing that you can do that will appease God, but there's a whole lot that you can do that will please God. So if you're doing anything for God, thinking that you're going to appease Him, stop it. Because He doesn't delight in that. But if I'm like, I'm doing this, God, because I know you're going to love it. And God looks at this, like, I love that. I love, I love your worship. I love that you would set apart time just to be with me. That's, and but I'm, doing, I'm just doing it to please you, Lord. You want me to be generous and give my money to that person? Yeah, well, I'm going to do that, not because I'm afraid of what you'll do if I don't. Well, I better, because then otherwise he, he won't give me more or he will take away from me. So I'm going to do it because I want to give pleasure to you, Lord. The motivation of our heart makes all the difference. The behavior can look the same, but the intent and therefore the fruit will be radically different. You know, when on this journey, it's like we hit points of pain and things get revealed and exposed. And I know sometimes you can do that. It's like, oh, I'm going well. And then, oh, things all of a sudden are not going well for me. Um, and there's pain attached to that. And there's, and there's brokenness and there's things. The, the point of pain is not for you to then try and avoid pain. Pain is there. Like if you think in your physical body, pain is there because something's wrong. And again, if I you know, uh, look down and there was a, a knife stuck into my leg, I'd say, that's not good. Might take some Panadol. Because <laughs> it's painful, but if I, if I take some Panadol, then it won't, it still be painful. Some morphine maybe, you know, hit the hard stuff. But it's like, you know what I'm saying. It's like, oh, well, I'll, I'll do that and then I'll, I'll, I'll just avoid the pain and I'll, I'll seem to be okay until the that wears off and then the pain will come back and then I'll just have some more and, uh, thing, and then I'll get used to the morphine so that I'll need something kind of harder than that to avoid. It's like, or I could just deal with the problem, which is that there's a knife sticking out of my leg. Yeah? Reminds me back of that um, thing with a girl. She's got the nail stuck through her forehead. And, yeah, yeah. You can look it up on YouTube. Um, so the, the point of pain is not to avoid it, but to search out the reason behind it. And so the, it's important that our pursuit of freedom and to be transformed, it's not just to avoid pain. Otherwise, again, we can get out of the pain of sin and brokenness and get to this kind of neutral ground. It's like, whew, I'm not in pain. Hallelujah. That's good. Now, I, I want people to live pain-free. God wants you to live pain-free. It's a good thing to be out of pain. But if that's the reason why you're choosing transformation, is simply to avoid the bad, then you don't then run into the good. Because what do I do now? I'm pain-free. I've dealt with the, the, you know, the bigger toxic sin and brokenness in my life. Now what? Well, now I get to run into the fullness of the opposite of that. So the pain is there to reveal to us that something is wrong, and then we can seek out the remedy to that pain. You know, it's like if, if, a, if a loved one passed away, it would be so normal for, you know, for you to have emotion and to cry and do that. No one would look upon you and go, oh, that's a bit weird. What are you crying about, you know? It's just a loved one that died. Like, it'd be, no, everyone's going to go, that's, that's a totally normal expression of emotion. Okay. So there are things where, where it's normal, but then we can have things where we hit hard points and we're upset about it. But then we try and go, oh, I've got to stop that or shove that down. It's like, no, no, you've got to express pain and acknowledge pain. 
And I'm not saying embrace it in a way that says, oh, cool, I can just live in this place. But you have to acknowledge the reality of that's where I'm at and something isn't right, which is why I'm experiencing that. God's put it in your physical body. He's also put it in your emotional and as you grow in maturity in your spiritual. So it's body, soul, and spirit. So again, we can be, we could be shut down emotionally, but unless you're a leper, you're probably not shut down physically. It's like, you know, I mean, you can get the, the toughest hardened heart man in the world, and yet if he, you know, paper cut, you know, it's this, that sort of thing. But hopefully it's like, no, where I'm awakened to my physical, God has awakened me if I have been shut down to my emotions and I feel emotional pain and I acknowledge there's something not right because I'm feeling it there. But then it's also this, like something tastes like socks, you know, in my spiritual. If you missed Amy's message from a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, it was phenomenal. You should go watch it on YouTube. Um, but there's things that then even our, our spiritual discernment gets awakened in that kind of way. But it's there. It's healthy and right to feel pain when things go wrong or when things aren't right. But what we do with that pain will determine our future. If we clean up all the sin in our lives, all the bad things that we do, it won't then mean that we are fully walking in righteousness. We have right standing with God, but we are called to pursue righteousness. Matthew 6.33, seek first my, my kingdom and righteousness. To pursue righteousness is to become more like Jesus because he is righteousness. If the gospel to us is simply the avoidance of sin, then we'll focus our time and energy trying not to do bad things so that we avoid the punishment or consequence of sin rather than pursuing good things so that we might walk in the righteousness of God. It's time for us to move past the basics. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. You are forgiven. God is good. He loves you with an unending, unfathomable love, etc., etc., etc. You have been made right with him. All is good on his end when it comes to your history. But God is most focused now on your future. And what are you going to do with the life that he purchased for you? Your life with Jesus is so much more than sin avoidance and good behavior management. It's abundant life. It's fullness of life. It's saying, I thank you that my history is dealt with Jesus. Now I want to run into my future. And my future doesn't look like avoiding the pain and the stuckness and the bondage of things that I did in the past. That's denial. Well, I'm just going to run after Jesus and forget about all the mess that I'm leaving behind. No, no, we've got to look around and go, I've got a mess in my family that Jesus wants to clean up. I've got, I've got some sin in my heart that Jesus wants to clean up. I've got, you know, like I, our sin impacts people, it impacts us. So we've got a, a clean up journey, but it's like, you know, sometimes I think about my kids sometimes. My eldest son, Noah, he loves, he, he loves to tidy and organize things. Our middle son, Micah, doesn't so much. D doesn't at all. And uh, so I don't know if Shepard is like, he got to the point where um, he hated cleaning his room so much that he just stopped using his room, which is clever. Um, obviously, they just make a mess in the rest of the house, but he was like, well, I don't like cleaning, so I'm just going to avoid living in that space. Uh, 
Not wisdom, but I'm just saying that's what he chose to do. But you know what? Sometimes you, go, you look and you go, oh, it's just this mess. I've got to clean this up. But the joy, once you've cleaned up a mess and everything's clean and tidy and put away, you're like, I hate cleaning, but I love cleanliness. You know, I don't think anyone walks into a, I'm not talking about a sterile environment, but like a, a nice clean home and things are in awe and go, oh, yuck. You walk and go, wow, is this is peaceful and, and nice, you know? Like I've walked into some homes and, and you know, like it's like scary and messy. And I'm, I'm talking, these are broken, traumatized people that are living in hardship. So I'm not, this is not a judgment against them, but like I've been in those places and you don't feel comfortable to rest. But you walk into a beautiful home. But you know that that process of doing the cleaning up, it can feel like it's not so fun. But when your focus is, but I know what this is going to feel like when this is cleaned up, when this mess is clean and there's order and everything's in its right place and there's not messiness everywhere, I'm going to really enjoy it. And that's Jesus' desire for you. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the future of what your whole heart is going to look like for you. Because he sees us in our destiny. He has no problem. He's not looking at our history. He's seeing us. You don't, you don't know who you are. You don't know who I created you to be. You don't know who, who you're going to be. Manifestly. But we've got some mess to clean up. God's not ashamed of your mess. He's not afraid of your mess. He's not concerned. Like, what am I going to do here? He's not, he's not, you know, like, oh, oh, that's pretty bad. Don't know if we're going to be able to fix this one. God's like, God's like ultimate problem solver. He's like, looks at any situation, yeah, piece of cake. We'll just do this and we'll do this and we'll do this and it won't feel like a piece of cake to you, but it always does to God. And that's why in a transformation culture, we want to create an environment where it's like, it's, your mess is okay here. But there's going to be a whole lot of people around you that love to help you learn to clean up your mess with Jesus. No one's going to clean up your mess for you. They're going to help you to be responsible to clean up your own bedroom. Yeah. But they might give you the tools. They might give you a broom. Here's some Windex and a, and a cloth. And we're going to help you. And we're going to sit here with you. That's what Noah likes. He often says, can you just be in my room while I tidy up because he likes to do it with someone. And that's what Jesus does. He's like, I'm not going to do it all for you, but I'm going to be with you and help you. Noah's helping me clean up the garage yesterday. And he's like, oh, I can't do it, Dad, I don't know where things go. And I said, well, no, then you can ask me. So he's like, Dad, where does this go? And I said, you put that up on the shelf up there. He doesn't, and I help him, I'm helping him in the process. But it's a delight and a joy. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for those who, who maybe even now still find themselves trapped trying to stand on the finished work of Jesus. That maybe you feel like, yeah, so much of my life, I'm just like, I'm, I'm just questioning and he's, he's angry with me, I've messed up again and you're trapped wrestling with what he has already accomplished. And I want to pray for those who maybe need a fresh vision for what God has for their life. It's like, yeah, no, I feel like I've, I've sorted that, but now I'm just stuck here, not knowing where do I go from here. So if you love prayer, why don't you just come and we'll gather around. Or not, no one wants prayer, that's okay too. So if you fit into either of those categories, 
You want to know and, like, and know and know the finished work of Jesus for you. And if maybe you just want that, you just want Jesus to speak to you about, where do I go from here, Jesus? What are you doing in me, Lord? To really grasp that understanding that he is delighting in your transformation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, I just thank you for these brave ones, Lord, that are giving their yes to you, Jesus. They're giving their yes to you, Lord. And Father, we thank you that as the scriptures say, Lord, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, I just pray for each one here, Lord, that they would know that they are in Christ. That you would drop that revelation even right now, Holy Spirit. You are in Christ. So guess how much condemnation there is for you? Zero. Guess how much condemnation you now deserve? Zero. Guess how much God desires to punish you for your sin? Zero. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Father, every, every question that they ask, Lord, when it comes to these areas of your finished work, Lord, and maybe they don't even know that it's finished, God, that you would just bring before them a giant zero. How unhappy are you with me, Jesus? Zero. I'm not happy, I'm not unhappy at all. I'm delighting in you. I'm rejoicing in you. You're my precious child that I love with every part of my being. And I've made every way possible for you to come before me. And Jesus, when you look at the room of our hearts, Lord, and you see the mess. You see the things that don't belong there. You see the things that maybe were working, but now they're broken and they've just been discarded. Those discarded areas of our heart, Lord. Well, it used to work, but just something broke that part of me and it's not working anymore. So I've just kind of left it in the corner because I don't even know how to fix it. Thank you, Jesus, you do. And Lord, you don't just come with super glue to try and stick things back together. You take those broken pieces and you make them whole again. I thank you, Jesus, you're making our hearts whole again. You don't look at the room of our heart with disgust or with despair. You look and you say, I know where every piece goes. And I'm going to help you to put everything in its right place. And I'm going to help you to, to sweep up all the messy bits that actually don't belong in here. All the rotten food that you've eaten and shoved under your bed. All the old broken toys that you used to play with when you were a child, but you're not a child anymore.
We're gonna, I'm going to open the blinds. I'm going to let the light in. So we can see it. And we can see it together. Because you don't need to be ashamed of your heart. You don't need to be ashamed of all the things that go on in there that nobody else sees because I see it. I'm not afraid of your dark. I'm not afraid of your dirt. I'm not afraid of your mess. But I have no desire for you to live in that any longer. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, you'd stir up the light in people's hearts. Like you're going to come in and you're going to clean with me, Jesus. That's what you want. You just want to clean with me, Jesus. And we're going to talk as we do it. We're going to walk around together and it's just going to be fun because you're doing it with me. You're not going to stand at the door with a scowl on your face saying, clean up your mess. You're going to take us by the hand and say, we're going to do this together. And everything that you need, I have for you. I have all the best cleaning products. Father, we just break off shame in Jesus' name. Lift off shame, that binding work of shame, that false guilt. We lift off in Jesus' name. Break it off your people, Lord. Break it off your people, Lord. We bind the power of shame, God. We come out of agreement with shame, Lord. Father, even where we believe that it is righteous to feel that way about our own hearts, Lord, that you would break the power. We come out of agreement with shame, Lord. Father, we, we, we embrace right, healthy guilt that says, you know what, my room is messy and I've, I've closed the door because it's just too much. But Father, we just pray that we would experience right, healthy guilt. This is now it's time to open the door. It's time to clean it up. But I'm not alone. We're not alone. We're not alone. And Jesus, we know that you will take, you'll be there for as long as it takes. You're in no rush, Lord. You're not going to turn around tomorrow and say, why didn't you clean it up yet? you know sometimes our, our rooms have been messed up by other people some of the rooms of our hearts have actually been trashed by people that didn't belong in there that broke their way in and made a mess and then just left us to clean it up so we know there's trauma in our hearts Lord those hidden areas, God, that we can't even face right now. But we know you're so gentle and you're so kind and yet you're so powerful, Jesus. That even where others came and they messed up our heart, Lord, and they left things behind, 
you're going to clean up even all those messes, Jesus. For you are patient and you are kind and you're gentle and you will take your time so we trust in your time, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, that as you are going through and, and cleaning up the room of our heart, Lord, you're going to show us things that you discover and say, hey, remember this. You're going to remind us of prophetic words spoken over us. Wow, I, don't know if I, I forgot all about that. You're going to remind us of, of childhood dreams that we have that you had placed in our hearts, Lord. But they just got piled under a whole lot of weighty things. But I thank you, Lord, that you have placed that destiny, Lord. It's already in our hearts, Lord. It's already in the room, God. And yet the message just got in the way. And it is as you are cleaning up, Lord, there's just going to be this discovery. I just see the Lord just going through the room of your heart. And he's like, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember when I told you this? Remember when we did this together and it was so fun? Like, yeah, I forgot all about that, Jesus. I really love that time. He says, you know, we're going to do it again. That's going to be even greater this time. But I thank you, Father, that right now you're just reigniting dreams and passions in people's hearts, Lord. You're reawakening our destinies, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I just see you removing the, the label of unqualified off of people's hearts, Lord. You're removing that label of unqualified. Yeah. <laughs> You're removing the label of condemned. <laughs> yeah, I feel like for some of you, it's like, man, my room was so bad. It was condemned. Mm. But it's always an outsider that comes in and, and puts that label on. So Father, we, we remove that label, God, off the access points to our hearts, God, that we are not condemned, that we are not fit for destruction and demolition, Lord. But our hearts are delightful places, Lord, that you are restoring, God. You are restoring, Lord. You are restoring, Lord. So I just thank you, God, for fresh vision, Lord, for fresh awakening and reinvigoration of dreams and desires in people's hearts, Lord. But I just see that coming. It's like as the Lord just, he'll be, he'll be removing some junk, but it's in the removing of the junk of what it will expose. It's like as he removes the dirt, he exposes the gold. Then he removes the dirt and he exposes the gold. And he chips away at the rock, the hard places. And what comes out is gold, precious gold. And Father, I just pray that right now we would feel just the warmth of your delight. The warmth of your delight, Jesus. Even in this moment, just would feel your delight, Jesus. The warmth of your delight. Because the warmth of your delight is the constant, Lord. That we would know that as a constant, Lord. The warmth of your delight. 
that when our faces are looking down and we're feeling cold, that we would look up and we would feel the warmth of your delight. Because that is unchanging. Just pray, Holy Spirit, you'd seal this work, Lord, this moment where you're encountering your people, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're just going to let the, just the ministry team maybe come and, and pray for people. If you want more prayer, we'd love just to bless you. You can maybe share a bit about what's happening in your heart. rest of you, you can you know, feel free just to go and grab a coffee, but feel free to stay in this time and just rest here. We love you. We're with you on the Jesus journey. We're proud of you. You're doing amazing. 